A lot of us might understand our relational patterns. You might be able to say, yes, I'm I'm anxious avoidant, or yes, I'm avoidant, or I'm whatever it is. Then the, the process is breaking that habit, doing something different, despite the discomfort that will inevitably come with the unfamiliar of change. Anytime we do something new, our subconscious It's not lost on our subconscious. Our subconscious knows it's new and knows it's uncomfortable because it's new. Um, And that's how we create change. I'm Alison Rice and welcome to Offline, the podcast. These are honest conversations about true self, with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched Offline in 2018. It started as a podcast, and thanks to your ongoing support, it's turned into a bit of a movement. Today, Offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are, our true self, and how to live, create, and succeed from that place. If you need help making contact with your unique purpose, or maybe you're ready for a conscious career change and need some advice, I encourage you to explore my online learning opportunities at getoffline.co forward slash study. You can also follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me, I'm Alison Larson Rice. I hope this episode helps you on your way. Thank you for being here. Let me please set the scene for this episode. My baby girl Betty was five weeks old when my request to have an honest conversation with my favorite psychologist was approved. There was no chance I was going to decline, but I also knew it was a bit of a long shot that she would be settled enough for me to leave her for a full hour. Our recording was at 7am sharp, and I literally breastfed her until 6.55, and what do you know, she slept like an angel on Tony's chest while I had this conversation. I like to think Betty knew just how much we needed this advice. If you aren't one of her 3.4 million followers, I'm very excited to introduce you to Dr. Nicole LaPera. She goes by the holistic psychologist on Instagram and through her conscious protocol is pioneering a new pathway to healing, which starts and ends not with doctors and medication, but with us. Her community identifies as self-healers. If you're in the world right now seeking knowledge and experiences with the intention to heal, you'll be familiar with the phrase, the work. We hear it so often, but rarely can anyone define it for us. What is the work? What does it involve? And how do we know we're doing it right? Dr. LaPera responds to our collective needs in her first book, aptly titled, How to Do the Work, Recognize Your Patterns, Heal from Your Past, and create yourself. Available now, she describes it as an accumulation of the knowledge of the interconnectedness between our physical bodies, our mental or emotional worlds, and the very thing we explore here on Offline, our true self, our essence, our soul. I 
think it's quite literally the bridge between spirituality and clinical psychology that so many of us have been searching for. We explore the book and what it has to offer in this conversation, and I also get Dr. LaPera's advice on the topics you sent in when I asked what you'd want to unpack if you had a session with a therapist today. Generational trauma, inner child work, overcoming trauma bonds, how to set boundaries, how to overcome excessive worrying and anxiety. That's me. (laughs) It's all here. I hope you enjoy this episode, and as always, I hope it helps you on your way. Okay, here's the holistic psychologist and I for Offline. So, um... Let's start with your wonderful book. I've pre-ordered it, um, How to Do the Work. It's described as both a manifesto for self-healing and an essential guide to creating a more vibrant, authentic, and joyful life. Tell us why you wrote it and what can we expect from it? So I'm smiling hearing hearing even the description of the book um, because for me, Allison, How to Do the Work really has been a labor of love, a passion project, and and one, if I'm honest, I, I would never have imagined was in my future when I began this, you know, personal and professional journey um, so many years ago. Um, for me, what How to Do the Work represents is an accumulation of self-knowledge, of clinical knowledge um, that I gained throughout my journey um, on the personal side of things and also working with many humans in, in many different environments um, struggling to create change. And what I realized quite early on in my in my old practice was that we were all struggling um, with stuckness, with the inability to create meaningful change in our lives. So the the work that I present in the book um, for me is an accumulation of the knowledge of the interconnectedness between our physical bodies, our mental or emotional worlds, And I'm of the belief that we have this other thing, this other aspect, this essence, this entity, this soul that makes us human. Um, So what the the work represents for me is hopefully a conceptual understanding, a more fullness, a more full understanding of ourself as humans. And also that last piece, um, I hope that it also provides the roadmap for people to translate those concepts into the change that, like I said, so many of us for so long struggle to create or maintain in our lives. Mm. So in the time that um, you did hold a private practice and you were practicing clinical psychology, what did you learn was limiting about, I guess, traditional therapy as we know it? I think I uh, I really highlight... Um, two main limitations. Uh, And the first limitation is what I call the the silo approach to treatment that I think historically, whether you're in the psychological field as I was or the medical field um, as medical professionals, doctors are, um, I think for a very long time, we had this idea of separateness, right? Your body was ill, you go to a medical doctor. Um, to manage those symptoms. If your mind is ill, you go to me, a psychologist, to manage those symptoms. And there wasn't much communication of the role that the body played in mental wellness or lack thereof. 
um, and vice versa. There isn't much conversation, or historically, there wasn't much conversation of the role that the mind and our experiences in particular and our emotions specifically uh, play in our body's physical health. So one of the biggest limitations is, like I said, keeping uh, the human in those separate silos. And I believe that we're actually an interconnected being. Uh, that does have those parts. We do live in a physical body with its own set of needs. Um, though we're also in communication with our mind, our mental world, our emotions. And like I said, I believe that we also have this more indescribable essence that really embodies our uniqueness. Another limitation um, that I saw in my practice was around how change is created um, and was around specifically uh, how we remain locked in those, those habits and patterns lived in neural networks that we formed or began forming, um, actual neurons that, you know, are firing together and therefore wiring together that actually live in a very powerful place in our mind, in our subconscious. And what I think for a very long time in my field is while I did study me in particular, um, I studied a, a type of psychology that's called psychoanalysis, which really just quite simply, if you, anyone who's heard of Sigmund Freud, the couch, really it just is based on this idea that our, our past informs our present. Um, though I think what was limited or lacking in the field is how much so, how powerful that subconscious is, and how much most of us are living quite reactively from that space continuing to repeat the habits and patterns that are keeping us stuck, um, even as many of us begin to accumulate over time the knowing better, right? All of the insight, all of the awareness, yet unable to, like I said, bridge that gap. So again, the limitations are not really understanding the unified human and not really understanding how to create change, which I believe comes through new choices that we make each and every day. Mm. I can definitely say for myself, having spent a couple of years in traditional therapy and, you know, being, and you talk about a lot, a lot about consistency and I was consistent going, you know, week in, week out and just replaying the same stories, you know, and as you were saying, not really getting any effective change. And then it wasn't until I started exploring, I guess, how I'm expressed spiritually and learning to meditate and doing those things that I actually started to move the dial on some of that stuff. So that's why I'm such a big fan of your work. I am curious about one thing. Um, so offline exists, this podcast exists as an exploration of true self. It's going to, who are we without the labels and the social followings and the job titles and all of these things. Your work and the book empowers us to create ourselves, create who we want to become. And I am curious about that because I wondered, do we not return to our true self versus create someone new? I love that. I love that question. And that's actually the, the um, subtitle of my book, you know, offers that idea of creating ourself. And I do think, Allison, that, that some of the process or, or the process for, for some of us is that returning home, is that peeling back the layers of the onion, if you will, if the layers are represented as I, I believe them to be of our conditioning of all of the different pseudo-selves and masks and ways of being that we've all adapted into living, into embodying, but though that don't really represent the full expansiveness of that which is us. So for most of us, it is a, a returning to the self. I can build on that 
because I believe once we're in that pure state of awareness that is the self, as far as I say it, we are powerful creators. Um, when we are in alignment in that way, when we are full and receptive to the fullness of any given experience in any given moment, then we really render ourselves in that ability to create. Um, again, whether that's to create further change or further transformation in our way of being, or to create you know, things in this world, relational experiences, um, we, can, it, we can step into that space. Um, like I said, oftentimes, once we return back, to that alignment that many of us have been conditioned out of. Mm. And this is, I guess, a broad question, um, but I think one that you might have answered a lot and certainly explored a lot in your work. A lot of us are challenged to understand how we make contact with our essence. You know, we want that practicality, don't we? We like a to-do list of things we need to do in order to get there. And I know that exploring consciousness is very different to to that. But what advice do you have for the women listening who want to make contact with their essence and experience the purity of themselves? How do we do that? Our essence, Alison lives, such a beautiful question, lives in us actually shifting from our typical habit that many of us are living of, of doing, right? Of that monkey mind. Some of us live our entire existence running narratives through our, our heads even, not even in our bodies. Um, but I think it, it, it is the process of shifting from doing to being. That's where essence mm-hmm. lives. So for a lot of us, that means hitting the stop button on those endless to-do lists. Um, finding the moment or two, you know, even with endlessly busy lives, and I know yourself with children and obligations and all of the have-tos that, you know, many of us will still show up to do in the world. Um, Though if we can carve out, you know, even just a moment in time of that inward, of an inward focus. And for a lot of us, that's a scary even (laughs) proposition. Some of you listening might be like, hell no, I can't sit alone. I can't sit in silence. Um, And those of us who have maybe tried might be met with how uncomfortable that is. Um, And some of us have been so uncomfortable for so long sitting in that silence within the self that we've become a pro, an expert at avoiding doing just that, at endlessly distracting ourselves all of the ways that we do. So to those women out there who I know I was one, Um, I couldn't make any contact, Allison, with my essence because I was living tucked away on what I call my spaceship. I was so dissociated and disconnected from my physical being, from any aspect of my essence, um, that my journey began by rebuilding that connection, rebuilding the safety in myself so that over time, gradually, I could begin to safely turn inward and to safely begin to cultivate that reconnection with my essence. So I think the short answer is for those listeners, um, it isn't a quick fix. We don't just magically snap our fingers and know how and where to find this elusive essence. For a lot of us, it's rebuilding the safety in our bodies and learning how to safely create the silence that allows us to turn inward and and make, make contact with that essence. Mm, that's beautiful. And I guess your book um, provides us with, it's a tool, right? I mean, that's obviously somewhere that we can start is by reading it. So the way that I framed the book, um, which is quite similar to the way I present the content 
um, on Instagram or on YouTube, wherever you meet my work. Um, I speak a lot from a narrative framework, sharing my own journey, sharing clients I've worked with. Um, I know the human mind uh, most easily makes sense of things through narration, through stories. That's how we can resonate. Um, though I also made sure to practical, make give practical tools. So each and every chapter talks about the concepts. So we talk about consciousness, for instance, the conversation you and I are having. And then at the end of each chapter, I actually give exercises, how to practically begin to integrate that concept into our, our daily choices, whether it's journal prompts um, or consciousness building activities. So I hope, and my hope is for people that this is a book um, that can not only, like I said, provide the understanding, because for a lot of us, that is the journey toward change. It is about pulling back and understanding perhaps our body's physiology and maybe the function of a dysregulated nervous system that many of us have been living with and the symptoms and the stuckness that can be caused, um, again, by our past experiences. Why that can be healing? Because a lot of us carry shame. We carry, mm -hmm. you know, feelings of unworthiness as we continue to watch ourselves very frustratingly repeat those same habits and patterns. So for many, that in and of itself, that understanding provides relief. Because more often than not, Allison, there is a physiological reason. There is a reason based on an accumulation of our past experiences that we are continuing to remain stuck in those patterns. So for some, simply reading and gaining that understanding can be the, the first impactful step on a healing journey. And then of course, bridging that gap, right, from concept into action. So I do hope that the the book, How to Do the Work, provides that toolkit as well. Mm, I'm so excited to read it. So I'll put it in the intro, but um, I know in Australia it's available on Booktopia on March 9, and um, this episode either will or won't be out by then, but hopefully it will be. Um, I have a... Um, a question for you, and I want to make sure I get this right based on the reading I've done and I guess my study of you. Um, your work empowers us to take responsibility for our emotions and our trauma responses. I want to make sure I've got that right because I guess my question is, if something happened to us, why do you believe we're then responsible for the impacts and I guess the emotional aftermath? Yeah, so <clears throat> I love this this question, and um, so we we've realized and understood in the field, um, actually not not in, until the more recent past. Quite shockingly, I think it was the '90s um, where research around our past, specifically around trauma, um, began to really come to the forefront. And really, simply what we what we started to understand clinically at that time was that our past experiences continue to affect us well into adulthood, whether it's through physical symptomology or diagnoses or psychological. I expand it. Um, I believe we're affected in our patterned ways of being and the ways we show up in our relationships and in the world. Um, so it took us some time in the field to understand really the impact of our past, though we now overwhelmingly, and if you listen to my work, you understand that I localize all of those habits and patterns, again, into that very powerful subconscious space that's directing our behaviors, that's dictating our choices, almost out of our awareness, almost all of the time. And while, you know, 
most of us, you know, have had had no control in terms of the family units we were born into and the large majority of experiences we had when we were a dependent child, um, when we didn't have choice. The, the stark reality for most of us is that we're still living impacted by those modifications, by those adaptations, and by those very real wounds that are all housed in that subconscious space. So when I speak of responsibility, it's really um, cultivating the shift because when we live from that subconscious space, we do very understandably begin to feel very reactive at first. Something happens in the world, and I know I can speak from the lived experience of this, I react the same way, even though I've set many well intentions to create change. We begin to feel really disempowered. We begin to maybe even entertain, right, that something is wrong with us um, and that we actually can't create change in the in the areas that we'd like to. Um, and like I said, I, 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 the responsibility then becomes creating the opportunity now to create choice, to acknowledge mm-hmm. the very real pains and wounds that have come and arisen out of circumstances that at one time were not within our control, but to now as an adult, um, which is the time when many of us begin to, to, to take this journey of healing, gifting ourselves with the opportunity to create new choices. Um, And that only comes from within. That comes as we learn how to create that space when those old reactions are still there, right? Do we almost see the, the, um, you know, the, I can't think of the word I'm using, the the two pathways, right? We see we can go right or left. And and those old reactions are, the break in the road are very strong and are very real and are very there. Um, Yet we need to, learn how to create the space to make a new choice. Mm. Um, that's wonderful. One of the questions I had for you was I was going to say your work is obviously a, a huge lesson in consciousness. And you've said before that consciousness is where we are granted a choice. So now I understand exactly what that means because I, I, one of my questions was, what does that mean? You've just explained it beautifully. Um, you also believe that the definition of trauma needs to be expanded. And I wondered if we could unpack that a little bit. Why do you believe that and what do you think it needs to include? Yeah, so that study that what I was referencing earlier um, that it took us till the 90s to begin to explore um, was this concept as some listeners might be familiar with of big T trauma um, and how big T trauma historically has been defined is were those instances of, of abuse, sexual, physical, uh, neglect, was having a a parent who was incarcerated or heavily addicted to substances. Um, And at that time, we, again, like I said earlier, we realized that if the more of those instances, the more of those boxes you checked in childhood, the more your likelihood increases of negative fallout of physical and psychological issues into adulthood. Now, when I first learned that, Allison, I was you know, happy as a clinician, of course, to begin to really now scientifically acknowledge the impact that our childhood has. However, as a person, as a human, when I took that assessment scale, I scored very low. I scored a one, which is, I think it it encapsulates 60 or 70% of, of the population. Now, I had worked, however, in many different contexts in inpatient units and outpatient units of individuals struggling with all sorts of diagnoses, scoring much, much higher. 
Yet I saw in our daily habits and patterns and in our coping mechanisms, a lot of similarity between myself and these other individuals who, you know, suffered the big T of trauma. And what I came to realize is that there's a there's much more um, that impacts us, specifically when we're in those critical developmental stages of childhood that can cause those same impacts, that those big, glaring, more or less before and after moments um, do. And so I, like I said, lived the experience of being one of those humans who for a very long time wondered why I was struggling in all of the ways that I was. And it's because, like I said, there's many other instances of consistent things, of consistent modifications that we um, undergo as a result of our lived earliest experiences that can contribute to the same patterned ways of being in adulthood that those big glaring before and after tight moments can. Mm-hmm. Um, I put a call out on Instagram before our conversation to ask my listeners if they had time with, I didn't reveal who you were, but I said she's basically the most followed um, psychologist on Instagram. And if you were going to have a session with her, what would you want to unpack? And I'm hoping now we can go through some of the responses that, Yeah, I received. I wanted to start first with one of your own um, pieces of self-work, though, that you have had to overcome. And and I think it's something that's quite common um, in people, but we don't necessarily know the label um, for it. And that is a tendency to disassociate. What does disassociation look like? And is it right to ask what kind of causes it? What causes us to behave that way? I appreciate you specifically asking around this this topic, Allison, um, because I think for some time, you know, whether or not we even heard of this concept of dissociation, or if we had, uh, I don't think it's a concept that um, is as understood um, as it ought to be. Because what I've come to find as it's that it's quite universal. So historically, in my clinical training. If I'm honest, when I heard that word dissociation, as I as I learned about it, um, namely in the context of some some of you might have heard of something called disassociative identity disorder. Um, it was once known as multiple personalities, um, mm-hmm. and essentially it's this idea of having different selves. So presenting in the world as a six year old child in one instance, and a teenager in another, and an adult in another instance. And that's a very simplification, of course, of the diagnoses. So when I learned about it in that context, had I ever heard the word dissociation, I never, Allison, in a million years would have applied it to me. Um, It seemed like something categorically different um, than anything that I could resonate with or that any process that I had seen myself. So for a very long time, that word itself was scary. I would cringe. It was not anything that I wanted to say or acknowledge, you know, was something that I was doing per se. And what I've come to realize is that disassociation is actually a function or a byproduct of the functioning of our nervous system. Um, it actually can, can develop from a, a state of an extreme state of nervous system dysregulation or of overwhelm that happens. So back in time, when I was a very young dependent infant, and I was born into a family that had a lot of big feelings. 
Um, there were health crises that were happening. There was a lot of stress in the home and a lot of big feelings. And in absence of having an emotionally attuned and supportive mother, because my mother was just as overwhelmed as I was dealing with the latest fire in the household. So as a child, the way I describe it is I had a lot of big feelings that were too overwhelming for me to navigate or to manage on my own. So I did, as we all do as little children, because we're incredibly adaptive. So I developed a habit of what I call getting on my spaceship or of dissociating, of learning how to disconnect myself from my physical body and all of its sensations that were present in that body that at that time in childhood were too overwhelming for me to understand or navigate on their own. So the safest place for me as a child was to be as distanced from them as possible. So then cue any time right, that overwhelm would set in the next fire that would happen in my, in my household, even if it had nothing to do with me, the increase in stress that would likely feel overwhelming to my system with limited support would result in me utilizing that checking out. I would get on my spaceship again and again and again and again. And what I didn't know I was doing was I was doing the same thing I was learning about. I was dissociating. I was separating myself from my physical and my emotional body, ultimately separating myself from myself, though doing so out of protection. Mm. God, that's big for me. <laughs> it was like when I um, really started reading into it, I had the exact same sort of epiphany that, wow, this is how I'm actually living my life. And um, so another topic that was actually this probably one of the most popular topics that came up was reparenting, which is probably not surprising to you. Um, some of my listeners used the term um, and are familiar with it. Others didn't, but their questions were directly related to it. I wondered if you could explain what the process of reparenting is. So reparenting <clears throat> is often a process that many of us, you know, uh, embark on in, in adulthood, though essentially what it is, it's, it's a process of relearning, um, first and foremost, likely of reconnecting rebuilding that connection to our, again, physical, emotional, or energetic selves, our spiritual essences. So for me, that meant learning how to be consciously and safely present in my body, reconnecting with my body and all of its physical sensations. It meant essentially, right, landing my spaceship. Um, mm -hmm. So inner child work um, for many of us can happen at any time. It's the acknowledgement that many of the habits and patterns that we're living um, in terms of caring for our physical, our emotional, and our spiritual selves, uh, many of those habits and patterns were began and repeated since childhood. So again, they are stored in our subconscious. So they typically are the habits and patterns that many of us, unless we be become consciously aware of them, to again create conscious change, many of them become the ones we're repeating in adulthood. And as adults, not all of the time are those habits and patterns serving us, right? The way that we care for our physical body. If we were even modeled how to tune into our physical body and its ever-changing needs might not fit our needs as they've now shifted and changed as we've entered adulthood. Emotionally, 
right? We might have to learn how to reconnect with our emotional selves, how to navigate our emotional worlds. Some of us become aware in adulthood that we are so disconnected from that essence that we were talking about earlier, um, that our goal and our reparenting process is rebuilding or recultivating that connection to our spiritual self or our essence. So reparenting um, can be a very individualized process. Um, it really means becoming aware of the habits and patterns we are living in areas of physical, emotional, and spiritual self-care, and of course, creating new habits and patterns that might better serve us. Mm-hmm. Um, one, so I was telling you before we started recording that I have a five-week-old baby. Um, I One thing I've been in therapy for, have previously been in therapy for, is anxious attachment um, to my partner. No one else in my life, just my husband. I wondered if you had any advice for me because I'm scared. In fact, I think I already am (laughs) anxiously attaching to my daughter as well. And it's been something that I've been very conscious of throughout the pregnancy and now in these early weeks, but I can sort of feel myself doing it already. Like I might be in the shower and my husband's got her and I start like calling out questions like, is she okay? Is she breathing? Is she... (laughs) Um, but I wonder what advice you have for me as I navigate this time as somebody who is, um, you know, I guess susceptible to that. Of course. So while I can't, you know, personally fully resonate with the experience of of birthing a child, of having a child, I I don't have children. Um, what I can resonate with is how our relational dynamics continue to impact us, regardless of to whom we're relating, if it's our child Mm -hmm. or our partner or our friend. Meaning those patterns, whether you're calling it anxious attachment or a listener might call it, you know, I'm avoidant attachment, whatever the dynamic is um, that we formed in childhood, particularly with our core caregivers, typically becomes the same patterning that we're repeating into our adulthood. So I I call it a concept um, that I call trauma bonds, which is really just that awareness that we tend to become very habitual in the way we're relating in our relationships. And then again, those habits and patterns were formed very early on. So that applies, Allison, to even those listeners out there like yourself who have children. So as all Mm. things change, right, two steps, the first step is awareness, is seeing yourself practicing being the witnesser of yourself in those moments where you, Allison, are showering, say, right? And you feel that ping, that you see that thought, right? Whatever it is for you that gets that kind of, that results in eventually you yelling out, hey, is she breathing, Mm -hmm. right? Whatever it is that starts you going, right? You becoming an observer um, of yourself in that moment so that over time, right, you can create the space to see that old patterning, like we talked about, see that fork, there's that word I was looking for earlier, that fork (laughs) in the road, right? And then in real time, you beginning to make a new choice, to not call out, to not react, to maybe give yourself some deep belly breathing to calm possibly the activation in your nervous system that might be setting in by that time, right? And this is a beautiful example of bridging that gap right, of understanding, a lot of us might understand our relational patterns. You might be able to say, yes, I'm I'm anxious avoidant, or yes, I'm avoidant, or I'm whatever it is. Then the, the process is breaking that habit, doing something different 
despite the discomfort that will inevitably come with the unfamiliar of change, anytime we do something new, our subconscious isn't, it's not lost on our subconscious. Our subconscious knows it's new and knows it's uncomfortable because it's new. Um, and that's how we create change. So for you, it's becoming aware, anyone who's anxiously attached, whether it's you know being expressed in your relationship with your children or with your partner or with your friends or your colleagues at work even. So it's becoming aware, cultivating consciousness in that moment so that in real time, you can see that those forks in the road and you can in real time begin to actualize new I'll be them uncomfortable changes, mm-hmm. choices in real time. Mm. And this is why you call it the work. That's <laughs> why it's the work. And that's why a lot of ourselves were stuck. We remain unable to build that bridge or to consistently cross it. Some because we take the discomfort of the unfamiliar to be we assign all of these meanings to it. We assume that it should be easy or that it must be a mean, you know, the mark, this discomfort must mean we're going in the wrong direction. Um, So again, this is why I talk about how work, it is daily choices that go into creating change, Um, daily choices that are for many of us intrinsically uncomfortable. Mm. And it's interesting, isn't it, how comfortable we are in our anxious attachment behaviors and there's something so familiar about them because we've done it for so long that that actually feels like the comfortable thing to do. Absolutely. It feels familiar. Our body knows those feelings down to our literal bones, our cellular chemistry. Allison, our neurons, right, that fire together, wire together. Our neural networks get so good at subconsciously snapping into these patterns. We literally, like we were talking about earlier, become so reactive because we are. We're locked and loaded just waiting to run this program that happens when this happens and that one that happens when this happens. Mm-hmm. It's calorically, um, it, it, it benefits our brain even at a cellular level in terms of cal- calorie expenditure. So when you're saying like we are stuck and locked in, like we are um, right down to mm-hmm. our physiology. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people raised issues with parents and relatives, some estranged from parents and relatives, um, and wondering whether they should reconcile others holding on to anger from childhood but pretending everything's okay now to keep the peace. And um, what would be your advice when it comes to self-healing and family? Like, can we can we actually have firm boundaries with our blood? It feels like you can implement those with your boss or your friends, but it's so much harder to do with, you know, your your family. Of course, it's so much harder to do because for most of us, these are where the earliest wounds, right, were formed and began to scab over and all of these habits and patterns began um, to be created. So when we go back, um, we can see this even, you know, those moments, those of us who have spent time in our adulthood, we've grown, grown, we've moved away from family, um, yet when we go back on Christmas, right, we can even feel that kind of snapping back into those old habits and patterns. Um, so being around our, our core caregivers can create a lot of challenge um, in the most simple way. And I describe this a lot. Anytime we're changing the way we're showing up in a relationship, at bare minimum, Allison, it violates the expectation of the other person. So of course, if we have family members, most of whom we've known our entire lifetime, 
I'd say a whole heck of a lot of expectations have been formed. So mm-hmm. as now you decide, you know what, you're not going to go to the family dinner every Sunday, or you're not going to pick up the phone call from your sister each and every time she quote unquote needs you, at minimum, that person on the receiving end is going to be surprised because for the 30 plus previous years, you were there. And then of course that gets complicated further by the person's wounding and the dynamics and there's a lot involved. So I'll speak from my own lived experience of coming from what we call an enmeshed or codependent family, um, a family who has no boundaries, no limits, no separation between individual entities. Um, And so my own healing journey for me meant creating that separation, meant putting up boundaries, meant saying no, um, and not showing up as I had historically always showed up. Um, There was a lot of disappointment. There was a lot of reactivity. Um, There were a lot of shifts and changes in my dynamics um, in my relationships across the board. So I know family can be challenging. Um, Once we've decided, you know, that we need to create change um, by utilizing boundaries or by changing the way we are arriving or participating on our relationships, while a lot of us have the expectation that everyone gets on board and changes around us, that's just not simply the case. However, um, and this is a journey I had to walk individually on my own as well, you know, continuing to focus on my healing, continuing to utilize the boundaries that allowed me to create safety in my family relationships, um, taking the space when I need it, regardless of um, if they understood or not. Um, And with family, like I said, I think that can be one of the most challenging spaces to begin to change, really. Mm. Yeah. Um, A handful of listeners sadly communicated to me that they were sexually abused as children and that they don't know how to heal. So I wondered if you could share with us, how does self-healing fit with this type of trauma where I guess someone's innocence has been stolen. Yeah. And in those, you know, the many instances of of us who have had sexual abuse at any age, really, at the hands of any perpetrator, um, a big, while I think the individual trajectory, of course, is different for all of us, the kind of what happens next piece, um, though I think quite universally, um, especially when the trauma was sexual to our physical bodies, um, that that often comes along with it, uh, shifts and changes in our relationship with our physical body, specifically mm-hmm. around safety. Um, and a lot of humans, of individuals who have experienced boundary violations, um, that's what sexual abuse is, um, begin to implicitly feel categorically unsafe in their physical bodies. And as a result, of that lack of safety, they might, like myself, dissociate, get on a similar spaceship, um, self-harm, might show up, you know, either maybe completely kind of exposing of one's body, right, kind of always physically available to another human without boundaries, or might go to the other extreme and, right, become so disconnected and so protective over the body. So I'm just using this because the trajectory um, of those that have experienced sexual ab- abuse, the what happens next, the coping, the adaptation can look different. 
Um, though I think at its core, those who have had those experiences, and it might be one, it might be ongoing uh, moments of those sexual or physical vi- boundary violations, likely are going to want to rebuild that safety within their body so that over time they can, and this is where we want to gradually widen the window, right, mm-hmm. of tolerance of how to be physically present. So for some people, this might sound like such a simplistic thing, right? It might be just practicing being embodied, right? Rubbing a finger on your lip and just focusing in the moment of how it feels to be in the physical person for just that moment in time. And then for those of us who have, you know, felt extremely unsafe in our bodies, that might be enough for that. And then we, you know, commit to that practice tomorrow. It might be just being embodied when we're on a walk, right? Just focusing our full sensation on how does my body feel today, moving through time and space, and that might be enough. Though, like I said, those who have had those physical boundary violations that occur um, with any act of sexual abuse likely are going to want to cultivate and rebuild that connection toward being in our body and feeling safe in it. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, There was a few questions, and I would include myself in this, around the father-daughter relationship and the connection to that and our romantic partners. I guess I'm speaking specifically to heterosexual women. Is there truth in that? Like, you know, that saying that we kind of choose our dads in a way? We choose what's familiar. We choose our fathers in our... Yeah, we choose what's familiar. So, you know, oftentimes you'll hear that in terms of heterosexual relationships that it would be the opposite sexed partner. Um, Though, again, if we just want to expand this globally, we choose relational patterns that are familiar to us, whether it was with mom, dad, or whatever caregiver it was. Um, And of course, you know, with sexuality and gender, sometimes it does map on to relationship with opposite sex parents. And then, of course, there there are also the other groups of people, right? For the the homosexuals, the lesbians, like myself, right? So it it for me, it's relational dynamics. And I do believe we gravitate toward that which is familiar, how we defined connection, how we defined love. And again, all of those get defined within those earliest relationships. Mm-hmm. I have a couple more questions for you before I let you go. I'm just picking out of the ones I've got left. Um I think perhaps boundaries, if we return to that briefly, because there was quite a few questions around that. Um, I don't know if this is too on the spot for you and tell me if it is, but could you provide us with any um, entry scripting to how we might implement boundaries with, say, a boss is probably a good example. I had a lot of people say that they don't have any boundaries with their employer um, and that their employees abuse um, you know, their time. How would we go about implementing boundaries with people that we previously don't haven't had them with? Absolutely. So the first step <clears throat> is to acknowledge the relationships where we could create new boundaries or, or, or you know, tighten our boundaries or be more flexible with them, whatever it is. So the first step is doing that self-assessment, right? Looking around and for a lot of us, those complicated relationships do live, you know, within our professional networks, with our bosses. They unfortunately also provide us with complica- extra complications. 
um, you know, dynamics at work, um, requirements for, for work and for jobs are, are different. And then there's obviously all of the things that aren't required, um, though, that are unspoken and just interpersonal aspects of the dynamics that can complicate things. So in terms of work, we still have every right to have limits, to have things that either do fall objectively out of the scope of our work, of our ability, of our agreement, if you will, um, that we are, you know, no, not willing to to engage with. Um, we also are allowed to have boundaries around our time and our energy. There's there's such a thing as out of work time, mm-hmm. and I know right now, especially in the virtual age, it can get really blurred. Um, it can be really unclear of where things begin and end in the professional realm. Um, though, if you are someone who you know, is aware that a boundary, usually a work, the two that come to mind are around time, energy, right? How available we are and how willing we are to use our mm-hmm. energy to do things, again, that are maybe within or not within our, our job duties or our responsibilities. So I guess the first step is being clear, you know, and in, in the, the areas where we're not required or we didn't agree to show up or there are egregious boundary violations because that can happen at work too, acknowledging that we do have every right to create a new boundary, um, even though it might be the scariest thing to even contemplate um, or really, you know, fearful to even imagine uh, engaging and creating a new boundary, knowing that you have every right to. Um, and what this could look like, I give uh, a bunch of prompts within the book. Um, a lot of times what can be helpful, I don't know how much this applies to work relationships, though. I'm sure it could, and the language could be something along the lines of, I'd like to suggest to share your intention, your why. Why do you mm-hmm. want to change the dynamic? So for here with someone in a business relationship, boss, right? The simple intention could be, you know, I'd like us to have a more comfortable working relationship or a more productive working relationship or whatever it is that you imagine will shift and change as a result of your new boundary. So the beginning of the com- the communication could be that, you sharing with whomever, right? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm realizing the need for me to change how I show up in this dynamic and I would like to do so you know, so that our working relationship can be more productive for both of us. And so how I need, you know, to create more productivity in our working relationship is perhaps I need more sleep, uh, meaning I might need to turn off from work at, say, 7 p.m. instead of being available all night so that I can get a good night's sleep and then I could arrive for work tomorrow refreshed, right? So that communication, you could share your intention um, and then you could state what it is that you will do differently. Now, this is where we differentiate between an ultimatum, which is you asking, say, your boss not to call you after, say, 7 p.m., if that's the time you want to designate as your off time. That looks different from a boundary. A boundary could sound like any calls, work or not, that happen after 7 p.m., maybe you're doing this globally. You know, I'm interested in in getting my sleep um, back in order so that I'm more rested for work tomorrow. So as a result, boss, I have decided that any calls that happen on my phone after 7 p.m. will go unanswered. I am shutting my phone off. I will be back online at you know 7 a.m. the next morning, um, and I will respond to any messages or emails at that time. Now, the mm-hmm. empowerment and the shift there is you're not requiring your boss not to call you. 
chances are if your boss calls you at all hours, they still will. The phone mm-hmm. will still ring or the it will get straight to sent to voicemail. You are acknowledging that if and when that happens, as it very well might, you are going to operate differently in that moment in time, which might be, like I suggested, to be unavailable. Mm, that's so helpful. Thank you. I didn't know whether that was putting you on the spot too much. but of course Oh, no, 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 not at all. I just, with, with work, I know it can be complicated because there are agreements, mm. there are work duties, there are contracts, right, that we're signing into. And there's the whole world of BS, the things that aren't contracted, but right, yeah. Janet in the other cubicle is doing it. And if I don't do it, then Janet looks better than I do. And this is, of course, then the inner work of navigating that tendency to compare ourselves to others. Though I know work just gets quite complicated quite quickly, yet there's still relationships all the same. So boundaries still apply, even though difficult. Mm-hmm. Okay, two more questions. So the final theme I want to touch on is um, self-sabotage and setting goals but never following through. Where does this self-limiting behavior come from? Why do we do that? So the tendency um, to self-sabotage, to not show up for ourselves as we often intend, comes from that powerful space of the subconscious, comes from that pull to the familiar. Oftentimes our best laid intentions for a future that's different are coming from that beautiful conscious place in our mind that unfortunately isn't online when we're living from that subconscious space. So, Mm -hmm. so many of us have lived patterning of what I call self-betrayal, right? The intention to create change, the intention to perhaps honor my body or my emotional or my spiritual needs. Yet, time and time again, I don't do it. And I don't do it typically because I'm shifting back into that autopilot and I'm living from those habits and those patterns. So the way out, you'll often hear me talk about creating a new habit of setting a small daily promise to create change. It's making, setting the intention each and every day to show up for yourself in a new way. Now, while I highlight a fellow self-healer that I talk a lot about, her name is Allie. Um, I highlight her throughout the book because she is and is still on an incredible journey of transformation that began with literally one glass of water each day. However, you'll always hear me acknowledge, Allison, it's not about the promise. It's not what you're doing. It's not the glass of water, right? It's not the five deep belly breaths that have been other people's small daily promise. It's not shutting my phone off, you know, five minutes earlier before bed or not bringing it into the bedroom. It's not the what. It's the action of alignment between intention and action that builds the empowerment reverses that lifetime habit of self-betrayal that many of us are stuck in. Mm, That's powerful. Thank you. Um, This podcast um, exists as I was sharing with you earlier, an exploration of self and who are we without the labels. I ask each of my guests a final question. um, And I'm so, so excited to hear your, your answer to it. When you're sitting in your true self, so without the, you know, three plus million Instagram followers and the author and the psychologist, without all of those labels and you're sitting in your true self, who are you and what comes up for you when I ask that question? 
I love that question so much. And and who I am is is awareness, is presence, is receptivity to who and whatever is around me. Um, I love kind of peeling it all back and not relying on on the labels of it all. Labels never really resonated with me. Um, so when left, when in my essence, um, I actually just imagine myself as being in in, in full reception and full receipt, almost like arms wide open, um, just taking taking the world in, taking everything that I can take in 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 any given moment. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I thank you so much for your time and accepting my invitation to be on the podcast. And I want to say congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Allison. I appreciate you and carving out the time and energy to have this conversation with me and for all of the listeners. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And um, I'll link it all up and I'll make sure I've got the the link to buy. And um, yeah, I can't wait to read it and um, good luck with it all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes, the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously, and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them.